This episode contains candid discussion of sexual assault and abuse. Listener discretion is advised. The glorious comeback when I turned fool and came back. The screen's a very clear mirror. There's a thing called a close-up. The camera advances and you stand still and your head, your face is caught in the frame of the picture with a light blazing on it and all your terrible history screams while you smile. After that close-up, they gasped. People gasped. I heard them whisper their shocked whispers. Is that her? Is that her? Her? I made the mistake of wearing a very elaborate gown to the premiere, a gown with a train that had to be gathered up as I rose from my seat and began the interminable retreat from the City of Flames, up, up, up the unbearably long theater aisle, gasping for breath and still clutching up the regal white train of my gown all the way up the forever length of the aisle and behind me some small unknown man grabbing at me saying, stay, stay. At last, the top of the aisle, I turned and struck him, then let the train fall, forgot it and tried to run down the marble stairs, tripped, of course, fell and rolled, rolled like a sailor's drunk whore to the bottom. Hands, merciful hands without faces, assisted me to get up. After that, flight. Just flight. Not interrupted until I woke up this morning. Ugh. God, it's gone out. The theater, the theater. Sing it out, Louise! Theater, theater. To be or not to be. Theater, theater. I've been a mess today. I was talking to Bailey about like just like dropping things and banging my toe. And uh-huh. yesterday was uh, Brian, my roommate's birthday. Happy birthday, uh, so, Yeah, so we, we were, you know. Uh, Kraz has become a character on this show. He has. He's quite a character. We'll get, we'll get him on one time. I'll have him do, yeah. We'll have him do a scene. We'll have him do a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, anyway, so I've just sort of been like this like dopey mess. And then what, <laughs> like an hour before record time, I'm like, I need 15 minutes. <laughs> well, it's been, a, it's been a year, obviously. So I understand where you're at at this point. But I also it's been a week. Yes. Things have been I mean, it's been a month. But like but this past week, we also had two uh, pretty incredible celebrities pass away. Mm hmm. Feels like 2021 is, you know, taking them all from us. We've had Cicely Tyson, we've had mm. Cloris Leachman, mm-hmm. and now we've got George Segal. What a career! Oh my God! What an amazing career! Just Which glance we... at his IMDb for ten, ten seconds, and you're yeah. just like, since like 1965, right. just works. And we're, we've always. got Albie, Edward Albie on this season, so we're gonna get to talk who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. Which he was yes, in. I can't um, wait. That's going to be incredible. But also uh, Jessica Walter. Today. Just today. Yeah, as, just as, today. as we record. Right. She passed today. And she was 
for Arrested Development, and I was a huge Arrested Development fan, and yeah. an, an amazing career, like everything. Uh, for me, Archer it's all about the Archer. Yeah, Arch, she's amazing Archer. on Archer. Yeah. But Great her takes, she's up there with B. Arthur for me in terms mm. of just being able to glance across a room <laughs> and steal the scene, just steal the scene from yeah. a cast of all stars. I mean, Arrested Development, those dudes are insane. For and, sure. And I've talked a lot with CJ about the B. Arthur triple take. <laughs> which is... We both have our different views on B. Arthur takes. Right, right. Well, but she has a hundred billion of oh, them. Yeah. That's the best yes. part. <laughs> Every single episode, she has a new double take, triple take situation. And by by season four, she's doing triple takes because the double take has already happened. Yes. Right? She's done it so many times. So then by the deep end of it, she's like, she's just like, I'm going to I'm going to do three, maybe four. And we'll see what happens. And it always kills. And Jessica Walter, like, absolutely had that exact same quality in in sitcom land, but even previously, like everything she had done, oh, she's yeah. divorced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, quite sad. But we uh Stan. Mm-hmm. We Stan a legend mm-hmm. in both. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and on that sad, horrible note, welcome <laughs> to theater. <laughs> welcome to Theater Theater, the theater podcast for theater people, made by three theater nerds from the LA theater scene. I'm Jay Bailey Bertram. I'm CJ Merriman. I'm Scott Leggett. And I'm Turd Burglar. <laughs> your your Zoom week, name's Turd Burglar Welcome to today. our third grade classroom, everybody. <laughs> and each week we get together to discuss, debate, and disseminate the evolutions of the great playwrights. This week we begin our new miniseries covering the works of Tennessee Williams, cast on a pod ten roof. Mm-hmm. Well done. Well done with that title. Yeah, man. It's, yeah. it's one of my I'm favorites, really I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really proud of that. And the artwork Waiting for is Pado great. is my favorite. That's Waiting for Pado is a great one. But yeah. uh, And great um, artwork, too, by the way, Bailey. Like, yes. way to capture the time period, the color yeah. scheme. Fuck yeah. Well done. Well done. Fuck Good I worked. Yes. I worked really hard on that one. I don't normally work very hard on that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. good, good, good graphics, bruh. Good graphics. Yeah. Everyone go check out the Instagram, theater underscore theater underscore pod. I know that's annoying, but it looks really nice yeah. when you see it on Instagram. So that's why we do it. But it's uh, theater R-E followed by theater E-R pod. Uh, and we aren't covering Cat on a Hot Tin Roof today. Mm-hmm. No. No. Unfortunately. Or next week. Mm. Um, we're not covering it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sure it will be brought up because yeah. it's it, it exists in the ether of his work. Um, it's He's an interesting figure. Probably, would you say, maybe the most known American playwright on the planet? Uh, yeah, I mean... He's, he's up there up with there. Miller, for sure. Miller, Eugene O'Neill, maybe. Mm, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. And August Wilson. Like, I, I think it's a it's a quartet yeah. uh, of great... For sure. Those four kind of dominate... Uh, and those are all done... Uh, highly done. Um, right. In um, other countries, but especially in Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, which is... A compliment, I think, to American theater in a way. Yeah, I think absolutely. I really enjoyed reading Williams all over again because it made me realize if we didn't have Miller and the and Williams, we would never have had Shepard or Letts. Right. In fact, um, we'll get to it, but one of these plays is like, this is some historical ass Tracy Letts shit, <laughs> to be yeah. quite honest. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's... it's um, 
it's going to be interesting because I always think of I didn't know Tennessee. We'll get into t- context after uh, in a second, but I didn't know Tennessee Williams like really at all. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was just like a realism dude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I think of street and I'm like realism. It's not. It's not. It's <laughs> no. fully grounded in like poetic n- non-realism. And theatricality, which I think is one of the only disservices the movies did. Was that sure. they were grounded in in realism? I mean, streetcars got its, its its moments. Streetcars, yeah. not so much, but yeah. Uh, uh, and so that was that's my only note about the movies that. Uh, but I haven't seen a. I've seen a lot of Tennessee Williams. I've seen a lot of Glass Menagerie. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we all have. We've, I think we've all seen a middle school production or two. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then just endless, endless. Uh, acting class scene work from Glass Menagerie. Yeah, how many times have you seen, like, the acting girl do a Laura scene? Uh Uh-huh, exactly, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) Uh, So I'm glad that we're not talking about Glass Menagerie because I think it's good, and I think it's a great prelude to his masterwork, his sweet spot, because he has a period of time before that where he's writing in the 30s. He's he wrote about six or seven plays, maybe even more pre-Glass Menagerie that we don't know. I mean, right. theater scholars know, but the general theater people don't know it. Right. Menagerie hits and then he he soars for 15 almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he's got his later period which we talked about cuz we were talking about <laughs> that we were maybe going to try and de- delve into one of those later ones, which was hard right. to find and he he was basically killed by the critics, you know, after 1968. He was right. a victim of the critics just going out. And he was trying and w- something different. Right. I would like to find some of those later plays and maybe do a Redux episode of Tennessee Williams where we come back to him and we're just like... Like, okay, we've, we've found and read <laughs> some of his later plays that got destroyed. Yeah. I think that would be fun. I think we can put that on the list for maybe season three or something. Yeah. But I'd love to. They- it's the same We're with covering. It's the same with Beckett. Like we we talked yes. about. Like we want to do those later Beckett stuff where he yes, starts writing I would for love women. To do and that. yeah, we should yes. absolutely revisiting will be great because you know we'll also all three of us grow as artists and absolutely. But it was a real pleasure to rediscover him. And then I had a I found a few quotes. I found a, an Arthur Miller had done the foreword to my copy of Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, cool. And. That is cool. And he's got a great story. Like he saw it in previews, like in Connecticut and was like, he knew, ex- he remembered exactly what seat he was in in what row he was in. And like, wow. he was blown the fuck away. Wow. That's awesome. But the cool thing was, is that reading that and then kind of doing some of my other research, a lot of things kicked in for me in terms of what he did, why he was important, when he was important. And, that I lost in college that I simply just didn't have the, the knowledge, the world knowledge to really kind of grasp. Oh, this is why Tennessee Williams is badass, Right. Well, and I, I felt too about reading Williams and I, I'm, I don't mean to compare him to Miller cause they're not the same, but um, I think there is value as, and it's the reason, I mean, streetcar was my choice. Um, I think there's value in doing these plays as is now, because I think there's a lot of things that happen in those plays, conversations people have, the way men treat women, whatever, 
that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. back then was just like this is actually just the way things are and now you would watch it and be like that ugh. I, I i feel like it's a precursor it's they're almost shepherd-esque in the way of like hey everybody in the 1940s 50s and 60s deal with this fucking shit or you're gonna have a mess of trouble to deal with in the future the way that shepherd does that yeah. Right, and I think that's the best part is that they see it as the same way you do, Siege, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're I, I would argue, I don't know actually, mm-hmm. but I would argue Tennessee Williams would approve of what you just said. Like, yes, I'm, I'm trying to point at this mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And we'll get to some of that and how it works and how it sometimes doesn't yep. work yep. and how it sometimes, uh, the movies tend to um, exacerbate the problem with them rather than showcasing the the good parts and it's all it's all gonna be part of it but um you know before we get into it hey scott yeah tell us some history <gasps> scottpedia thomas lanier williams the <laughs> third Great name. Could you do it that southern drawl the whole time? I'll tell you what. Uh, di- digression. Hashtag digression. Uh, we should get a stinger. We should have Ryan do a stinger just for yeah, digressions. But we probably should. I oh, went Ryan. and uh, I listened to a number of interviews with him over the years, starting in roughly the mid-50s, going through the late 70s. Oh, and that lull, that that voice, you know, and and I've spent a lot of time in the South. I lived in Mississippi for a while as a kid. Oh, you lived in the South. I lived in Mississippi. <laughs> I lived in Biloxi, Biloxi, Biloxi? Mississippi. Wow. Spent a lot of times in New Orleans. Spent a lot of times, a lot of time in the Gulf Coast. Lived. In- My family's from uh, Russellville, Alabama. Russellville, Alabama. Russellville, Russellville, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> So yeah, no. that lull, that lull was uh, it's it's always kind of it always is a warm spot in my heart. Um, he was born in uh, Columbus, Mississippi, of English, Welsh, and Huguenot ancestry. This would influence him for a long time. Uh, March twenty sixth, nineteen eleven, was his date of birth. Um, mm. He was the second child of Edwina Dakin and Cornelius Coffin Williams, mm. uh, which is a name that appears in uh, uh, Night of the Iguana. We'll get to that. Uh, right. He names it. Uh, he was known as Cece to his friends. Um, and it's said that Tennessee may have inherited the best and the worst from both of them. Uh, that's a quote mm. from his uh, his younger brother, who just died in 2008. His mother, Edwina, was the daughter of Rose O. Dakin, a music teacher, and the Reverend Walt Dakin, an Mm. Episcopal priest. Ah, there it is. From Illinois, who was assigned to a parish in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, Shortly Mm. after William's birth, Williams lived in his uh, parsonage with his family uh, for much of his early childhood and was close to his grandparents. His mother was described as mentally disturbed and sexually repressed and very manipulative. Um, in his youth, uh, Tennessee had uh, a number of uh, medical conditions that basically kept him in bed. So he spent a lot of his early years just reading and alone in a room. This is uh, a theme we see through many, many great writers uh, throughout history. True. He had two siblings, uh, his older sister Rose Isabel Williams and younger brother Walter Dakin Williams. Uh, he was very, very close uh, to Rose, and it was her mental illness that would sort of become the inspiration for many of his female characters. Uh, Rose was eventually lobotomized uh, in the late 40s. <laughs> 
basically it was it, she it had just oh it had just become a thing mm-hmm. um and she was lobotomized and institutionalized right before glass menagerie hit um but basically for the rest of her life um he would bring he would frequently bring her to productions of his shows he wouldn't talk about her except to say that she was in a tranquil state She's in a tranquil state. Right. Well, she's been in a tranquil, <laughs> tranquil state. Um, That's awful. We're terrible. We are. Uh, okay. He had a long-term relationship uh, with a gentleman named Frank Merlo, and we should uh, you know, say pretty out loud that he was a gay man and uh, was yes. sort of openly gay and accepted and... Uh, that I think has a tremendous influence on on it's all. It's almost of his like work. American Oscar Wilde a little bit. A little bit, yeah, for sure. Uh, he was uh, a drinker. Tennessee Williams was what? No, he, <laughs> he uh, may have taken some sleeping pills from time to time to get some what? rest. Uh, and I will say, unfortunately, I I think, and we'll, we might talk about this, is that I think people know him more almost as like a sad story than as like a great playwright and in, mm. in, in terms of outside of theater yeah uh, mm-hmm. well and that's yeah, yeah that's sort of the legend and then of course you got like john mahoney's character in um it's uh, not barton it's fink barton fink, fink. Barton yeah, fink. i was gonna that's say miller's barton. crossing it's barton it's fink. barton fink where he plays a, a a a version of williams during his hollywood years right. which he he wrote in hollywood he basically made money in hollywood before he broke as a playwright and then he kind of was, it was, it was an interesting thing. Uh, but he was also known to be very promiscuous. He cheated on, on Frank Merlo quite a bit. Uh, he lacked young men and lacked the company of young men. Uh, mm. He died February 25th, 1983 in a hotel room. And he choked on the bottle of a pill cap, uh, the, bo- the cap of a, bil- of a pill bottle, excuse me. Uh, was it a pill bottle or like a nasal decongestant bottle i don't the, know the I've biography I, I i i watched said that okay. it was it was a pill it was a bottle top huh. um, Weird. but uh then, then so, there, there's a little bit of controversy about wh- if he may have just od'd or what happened hmm. but um yeah in those later years there there are some interviews from the late 70s where he's openly drunk being interviewed by david uh-huh. frost and uh dick cavett uh, and he's he's alert, like he's responding to shit, but he's clearly just I'm giving up on it all right now. Yeah, you don't you it's, don't do that because you're happy. That's exactly. for sure. Uh, but that's the that's the big stuff, and I I think that just those basic simple facts sort of illustrate that he drew from his pain. I think wait, there's a great Arthur Miller quote. Uh, yeah, streetcar and specifically was a cry of pain, and he. Was wow. haunted by his family. He was haunted by. Yeah, his father was very abusive to him, both physically and was. His mm. father just couldn't handle the fact that his son was effeminate and uh, didn't play football and liked to write poetry. And he just. Uh, well, this daddy. sounds like a play yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah right. Uh, yeah, it's it's almost it's sadly almost a cliche. Uh, how how deeply that impacted him. But it should also be said that he was an extremely accomplished writer beyond the plays. He was a poet. He was an essayist. He wrote tons of short stories and short fiction. He, even in his later years, he would get up, 
he would pour a tumbler of bourbon and he would sit down at the typewriter for eight hours. Sometimes he wouldn't produce anything worth anything. Hell yeah. But he, <laughs> he wrote every day. He was almost addicted to the typewriter. Wow. And uh, I think wow. that that's interesting. And, and they sorted out, they were sorting out uh, his writings and his papers and stuff for for years after he passed. So, hmm. um, yeah, an interesting cat. Yeah, it's for like sure. that play um, Proof. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. Where they find uh, after the man passes, they find just all of his books of math. And yeah, it's it looks like insanity, but is it like it might be the secret to the frickin' universe? Right, kind of it's like, like we don't know. That play was big when I was in college. Everyone was doing scenes. For oh yeah. yeah, there's a. I use a monologue. I use that. Um, Who her that? addressing the at the funeral, mm -hmm. her father's funeral. Oh yeah, it's yeah. an amazing eulogy monologue and i use it often did you guys awesome. ever see the movie i never saw mm -mm. the film i didn't yeah gwyneth it's gwyneth paltrow and jake gyllenhaal and um anthony hopkins yeah oh all right and it's good all okay. right yeah it's, it's, i, I always heard better, it was solid but it's good yeah it's a good movie um anyway um, so digressions well, yeah what's your context with williams in general because i'll be honest i'm pretty new to him so i want to know what where y'all are coming from on this mm. siege yeah um i honestly i i had to read him for major dramatists in college and we read cat on a hot tin roof um and later on i read streetcar and glass menagerie on my own um, but then also um, they did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at the St. Louis Rep, like one of my first years there. So I got to see like a professional production oh, wow. of it. And the thing that I will say that I all I remember from that is the last scene where she's told everyone that she's pregnant. So now they have to get pregnant. And the guy playing Brick lined up three shots of whiskey and took them in succession, trying to bring the click back in his head. And I just remember the audience reacting to it. <laughs> right. Uh, wow. But yeah. But that's a great way to play that ending, too, of him being like, okay, I have to get drunk to have sex with her. <laughs> right. right. Like, I have to get, like, beyond where I'm already at, because I'm already... He's He's been plowing whiskey the whole... He's been drinking the whole show. Time. And if you direct it that way, as it should be, then he's he should be, like, deep... Yes. And the fact that he would take three more, like, <laughs> oh my god, dude! How did he? Man, he must have been virile as shit if he could have all that fucking whiskey and still get a boner. Mm -hmm. I mean, way to go, Brick! And also, whiskey dick is real. Not attracted to his wife at all, right? No, he's <laughs> repressed. I mean, he's he's a, a gay man, you know. Yeah. And Tennessee talks about that. He Tennessee Williams has a great story about. Losing his virginity to a woman. Hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, realizing that that wasn't quite his forte. <laughs> it wasn't quite his forte. <laughs> so, you know, but... Um, uh, but was that, that... That was your experience? Yeah, yeah, that's it for me. Yeah. yeah I've I, seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof movie a couple times, but... Um, the first memory I have of being aware of Tennessee Williams was that streetcar was on TV. Uh, I was a little kid, like a little, like five or six, maybe seven. Uh, but I had seen Superman, 
the motion picture that had sure, Marlon Brando sure. as Jorel, and all sure. I knew was Jorel's going to be on the TV, <laughs> like course. mom and dad just going, "You're not going to understand a thing that's going on here." <laughs> so, but I, I have a vague memory of seeing that for the first time, and I'd seen a lot of the movies. I'd seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and uh, but it was it was really in high school that I kind of was forced to read Glass Menagerie, and then was liked it. I remember just reading it and really kind of like going, oh this is this is interesting i'm in this whole thing uh and then of course in college i'd read some i've seen some bad productions of glass menagerie uh i've seen an okay stage production of cat on a hot tin roof uh and a few others but i don't have a strong memory of it and so it was really and and then i think i'd gotten to that point and i maybe a lot of people in my generation have where it's like oh tennessee williams yeah he's tennessee williams great and then you don't go back and really look at him I, this is one of the great joys of doing this podcast aside from speaking to the two of you well but, but uh it was just rediscovering and going oh fuck me man this dude was good and I brushing him off is not uh uh is not cool <laughs> well and i will say i i hadn't read I hadn't read a lot of them since school. And mm -hmm. then it was when we were doing Lear Loman a couple years ago for Fringe. Oh, right. Like it, that there, they had a couple of the characters walking and Blanche was one of them, I think. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna reread A Streetcar Named Desire. And then that this was one of those plays that I was like, rereading it, I'm like, mm, people would watch this differently, I think, than they would back in the day. Oh, yeah. um, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated by Streetcar, I love it. Bailey, what's your context? Um, I read Glass Menagerie because it was given to me freshman year of high school uh, as a signed reading, and I liked my teacher, mm -hmm. so I liked it, which was very much a gauge of whether or not I would like a book when I was in high school. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but I, and then I was assigned Streetcar uh, uh, to read my junior year of high school, and I remember really liking it because I wanted to be in it yeah um and i was just like oh this is you know and i think i was just in my my theater kick i was start my real theater kick was starting where i wanted to read plays and things so it was exciting uh it was the first play i remember reading where i really like read myself as a character while i read it yeah and it helped me read it um and then uh i didn't really do i've seen some glass menageries and that's it i've never seen streetcar on stage i've never seen cat i've never seen iguana i've never seen any of them uh but i did read in college two of his shorts mm. uh his one acts that are from 27 wagons full of cotton oh yeah mm. yeah sure because um, i was trying to find something to direct i ended up choosing cowboy mouth by sam shepherd but it was uh i I ended up reading two of these that were suggested to me. One is called Auto de Fe. And it's about a man basically telling, I'm, I won't give it away because I think people should read it, but it's him like giving, telling a horrible secret about himself to his mother or like trying to, but not really being able to. And he just like, can't really say it. And she's not really listening. And then he burns himself alive in <laughs> the house. Uh, and it's incredible. Um, but the twist is really what he did, so that's what you should watch it for. But the, it's just an incredible little uh, short. And then the other one is called This House is Condemned. Yes. Or this I've heard of that me, before. This property is Pro condemned. This property right, is right. condemned, yes, yes. And it's about 
two little kids meeting under a bridge or like a railroad track kind of thing and they become friends sort of in these like 10 pages but one is named tom and one is named blanche Hmm. and you realize that it's tom from glass menagerie and blanche dubois from streetcar as children um and it's interesting i wouldn't call it good i mean it is it is good if you like really love those plays and you want like further insight Mm. but i don't i I don't remember like loving it which is why i didn't choose to direct it but yeah uh that's my whole context and i had i had seen streetcar because i think we watched it in class after we read it but uh the movie but i haven't seen it since then uh hey stella is in our theme song yep Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh that's about as close as to it i've gotten since then it's a great it's a great performance by ryan thomas johnson who (laughs) does all the vocals on that but yeah it It really sounds like yeah um but it's uh uh it's something i know it's just in the ether all the time it's like the most he's like the most referenced playwright of all freaking time yeah uh Streetcar Named Desire is in is referenced in a Wu Tang song. Yeah, wow. No, like, <laughs> main reference like Bob Dylan. Everybody like he's he's Streetcar Named Desire alone is like one of the most referenced things on the planet. Oh, and I've seen I've seen I've seen Blue Jasmine, which is a terrible Woody Allen movie with an amazing Kate Blanchett. We need to stop bringing up Woody Allen on this podcast. <laughs> it happens it's, almost every well, time. You know, I it's funny because it, I'm not a fan. I was just talking. I, I see. I was a fan. Like, and right. that's, that's the thing that sucks is you. And it's the discussion about all these artists is that you, we can throw that stuff away, but then we throw away Kate Blanchett's performance. We throw right, away, right. you know, both of Diane Weiss' Oscar-winning performances. We throw away Michael Caine's Oscar-winning performance, and right, you know, in in films that I like. And so my solution lately has been, okay, let's do the ones that, and even Mia Farrow, like that's that's the one of the that's great the tragedies is mm-hmm. like. Her best performances are under Alan and Polanski. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's shit. It's it's so Sucks. hard because like yeah. then there there are some like uh, Alice, which I think might be her her best performance period that Woody Allen isn't in. He only directs it. He's not right. in it at all. Well, so and everyone should definitely watch Alan versus Pharaoh because it's yes. on HBO because it really steps through how it all happened and it's 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 hard to watch, but it is it's. You know, it needs to be seen, but it also, it does a really good job of saying, like, how do you cancel the monstrous men behind art? Right. right? Like, how do you, how do you cancel the, the monsters who make good art? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's impossible to take Michael Jackson out of the ether of pop music, but can we stop, uh, holding him up as a God? Yes, we can, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's there's things that you can change about the way that you talk about him. And so, like, we're going to actively try to not talk about Woody Allen anymore on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but he's so part of the theatrical ether too that it's 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 all part of it and it which so that's how you Well, yeah, you that's the other thing right. that sucks is that he was so into theater. He went right. to theater all the time and there are references and cool fucking things and in a lot of his movies and let, let's move on. But anyway, I, so I brought up Blue Jasmine because I brought up Blue Jasmine because Kate Blanchett does a phenomenal modern day sort of take on Blanche Dubois. It's she's great in it. She gets an Oscar, I think, or at least the nomination. No, she won. Um, yeah. yeah, she won it. And um, that brings us to CJ's pick, which was what CJ? 
A streetcar named Desire. And hey, before we get started, I I, I do actually want to um, bring this up, and, and we can cut this out if you guys want to. But CJ, are are you okay? Because like, seems like you're having a breakdown. CJ's breakdown. Boy, I really fell for that. Uh, Blanche. <laughs> It's a good setup, bro. Good setup. Like, wait, what? Uh, Blanche Dubois moves in with her sister, a very pregnant Stella Kowalski, and her asshole husband, Stanley, in New Orleans. Blanche's flirtatious Southern Belle presence and needy ways pisses Stanley off, who thinks he's justified in victimizing his wife, and eventually Blanche, whose past reveals her to be a predator herself. And you know, that's not how I read it the first time I read it in high school. Me either. And I don't even know that it was pointed out to me that way. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even think that was ever part of our discussion, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I think that for me, the most interesting thing and the pleasure of sitting down and reading this was this is Blanche's play. Marlon Brando and the aura around Marlon Brando. And this was his big breakout performance on Broadway. It should be said the movie is another thing but right. on stage he was the one that got all of the attention uh and i think that that's such a disservice to the play as a whole mm-hmm. certainly to vivian lee and jessica tandy who originated the role on on broadway of blanche uh that he yeah it, i would love to play stanley and i get like the, his animal magnetism because you get to play the asshole you get to play the villain so you can just go balls out and right. dig into it and I'm sure he was insane on stage and and in changed the face of acting as we know it and blah 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 blah. It's interesting how I've well I don't I say people I've only had one conversation with someone that still wanted to defend Stanley and said like oh wow well the stage direction well you know Blanche is is uh, a statutory rapist and she had an inappropriate relationship with a young man. That doesn't make but, it okay for but, someone else to Well, no, no, no. It doesn't make then, rape okay. But then he points out, but then he points out that the stage the stage directions are not specific about what he does. She First faints, of all, he picks her up and takes her to the bedroom and that was the justification for this person. I'm not going to say who it is, but I think that there's I think there's probably plenty of people that want to explain that away because Blanche is so annoying and she's such a mess and she's fucking everything up and then you find out this horrible past about her. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but the I, whole... I, I agree. I, there's there's no defense of, of him no. at all. He, she, the character picks at him. There's a few things that I will... You know, the, the whole Pollock thing and the, the reoccurring, you know, sort of pushing those buttons. Okay, mm-hmm. like, I can see why he doesn't like her. And also... He's an asshole from the beginning about it. Yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean the 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 plantation's gone? I'm I'm supposed to get some of that plantation too. Like it's the you know, Napoleonic law. Yeah, all that bullshit. Well, we've talked about this with a lot of other plays. We talked about I think specifically the first time we talked about it was Body Awareness, uh, Annie Baker, mm-hmm. where sometimes and I think I like these plays best a lot of the time where people are being presented and there isn't really a hero here. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's more like, no, this is we're just watching moments in time of what is a reality of this time being theatricalized. That's a terrible word. <laughs> no, I think it's a perfect word. Thank you. <laughs> right. But it has that kind of feel to it. And Blanche is 
And I think I'll make this connection to the other two plays because he sort of has a Blanche analog in all of his plays. Yes. And there's always this sister. fish out of water. Yeah. Right. There's this fish out of water sort of um, person coming into a new place. Um, and he doesn't he doesn't seem to hate or love any of them. Mm -hmm. It's very much a presentation of these people. And I think the movie like sort of adds a grandeur behind everything in a bad way right mm -hmm. uh that i think on stage you wouldn't be rooting for fucking brando right you know right. what i mean brando's got his like tight fitted shirt and it gets he gets wet like 10 times mm -hmm. and you're just like oh my god <laughs> yeah i want to do him so that when he does do something awful like a sexual assault of a person, which it's very, it's very, it's very obvious to me that's what happens. Yeah. And I think most people, that's how you would direct it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that's how they did it in the original. Um, and so it's, it's sort of like we're not supposed to ever root for him. We're so, and he's sort of doing this like I think Blanche is a phony. He's holding Caulfield. Right? He's like she's just she's a freaking phony, and he is used to having complete control mm -hmm. and she comes mm -hmm. in and mm -hmm. is this whirling dervish. She's of, a moth. Of, he describes her as yes. a moth. Yes. <laughs> and he's like, wait, I, I don't have control of every conversation I'm in. Like I do with Stella. What is happening? And mm -hmm. I think he does truly love Stella, but I also think oh, he's yeah. probably, he might I be think that that's what makes bit, it but. work. I think it's the one thing that makes you, at least in revisiting, makes you, tolerate stanley is that he does love Stella. right well it's yeah. very textbook abusive relationship though sure yes. Abs oh, yes. absolutely i'm not i'm not saying that no of course uh, not i think I, something that's clear to me about all of williams's play is he knew every single person in this script oh yes every I single have. in all of these scripts they are somebody that was in his life at some Which point is why i feel like someone i agree because i think when somebody tries to and I'm not disparaging this person who told you this, CJ, but I think when somebody tries to stand up for someone like him, I I'm like, oh, do you just really want to play that part? Yeah. Or do you – because it's it, – you might love the part, but do you really love that person if they existed in real life? And maybe you do because you knew them as your father uh -huh. or as your brother or uncle, but, but do you – Listen. Do you no. Really defend those. People? Yeah. Do you want to be, defend? Be as disparaging as you want, because I completely disagreed with them when they were talking to me about Good. it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, and, and and it goes into sort of. I, I'm going to bring up Lolita and Nabokov like four times right. during this uh, conversation because <laughs> it has many connections to this. But um, it's it's that sort of argument where people like lolita for the wrong reasons i'm like exactly. that makes me question yeah. like wait do you like this play for the wrong reasons because this play makes comedy out of abuse right mm -hmm. this make this i mean there's a the couple upstairs that keep beating each other yeah mm. and they just Unity. they're just sort of like oh they're just rolling around it's fine yeah and it's <laughs> like Christ. no it's not <laughs> well yeah and i think it, it's also about you know, harnessing time and what was acceptable, especially like in, in cities like New Orleans and that sort of right. thing. And um, I think he's pointing at it again. Like we said at the beginning, he's 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 actively trying to show that this is an abusive relationship. Yeah. I don't think he I don't think he supports these things. Right. right. No, I think it was ingrained in him from I mean, I think he watched his his mom get beat up money a time by his father and 
uh, I think that we're also getting to sort of the heart of why Williams is Williams and why we regard him so highly is that he what he did was he came in and he put language and character at the forefront before plot at that time as this is coming out broadway is straight play straight dramatic plays on broadway just weren't he may have single-handedly saved uh theater post-world war ii sure because he basically comes in and goes the plot isn't important these characters and the language is important and so that gives him a chance to create three-dimensional character every one of these characters is three-dimensional for the most part we'll get into like things like um the negro woman as it's described he doesn't even give her a name 10 years right. later when he w writes sweet bird of youth then he starts giving uh yeah. you know, black and african-americans names for these characters mm -hmm. right uh and that's that's part of sort of the big discussion right now in terms of like turner classic movies going back with a lot of these right. movies and talking about those problems and and specifically with african-americans and giving them identity and giving them things like names and really <laughs> right. humanizing right. them right uh so to what year was this on broadway uh, 1947. 47. Yeah. 47. Okay. My okay. dad was born. So, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So we're so, yeah, we're right after the war. Yep. People are wow. still recovering from the war, sort of still coming to terms with all that. And we've talked about like that generation's repression of so much. So yeah. much of the PTSD that those sol the soldiers came back and they were supposed to just go back to work and just yeah. keep everything quiet. And you can don't see that. Don't talk it's, about your problems. Don't talk about right. your problems. And it all, it all percolates. Stanley and Mitch uh, in Streetcar are both veterans. They've mm. come back from the war. And they don't talk about it beyond, he's my buddy. We were in the war together. We were in the, whatever, the 441st or whatever. Right, right. They were mm -hmm, in. Mm -hmm. And I, found, I find that um, as interesting a thing as possible I, I think he loves and hates all of his characters throughout not just in streetcar as much as he loves and hates his mother and father that fucked with him so badly i mean how yeah you know he still talked he talked about you know how abusive his father was but how much he still loved his father there were still right. moments it's complicated it it's yeah, all complicated he's, he's giving humanity to the 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 solitary outcast right he's giving humanity to the 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 people who are on the fringes of society or whatever and sometimes those people are criminals mm -hmm. sometimes those people have done horrible things mm -hmm. sometimes those people haven't done horrible things but but society de deems them as horrible um or at the time especially right with whether it be homosexuality or whatever mental but illness oh mental my god illness, yeah right um but then he's giving a voice to those kind of people and i think he's not necessarily ever saying like these are our heroes these should be you know they should be upheld but it's like but we should see their side and we should understand it and that's an interesting side of this mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. the original cast yeah, By the way, extraordinary. Marlon Brando, obviously, before he is Marlon Brando, mm. like this is wow, he's purely stage. Uh, and Jessica Tandy, mm -hmm. who I looked up pictures of her in this, she is a stone cold fox. She is, but not as Blanche but, Dubois. 
you know, and I think Vivian, I'm sorry, keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in in a second about it. That's it. Oh, she's just, those are the she's two one big of my ones. Favorite for sure. actresses of all time. Fried Green Tomatoes is like in my top five movies sure. ever. And, and I love that book and I love it, but she's, she's the old narrator woman in it. And she's, uh, she's in a, Driving Miss Daisy, which she, is problematic, but a, lo- a hundred other things. She won the Tony for this, I believe, for Best Actress. Yes, and I think so. But also uh, Kim Hunter as uh, as Stella, yes. who's who's also in the film, but who she does the film. Yeah, Carl right? uh, Malden as Mitch, who also who's does the like, film. Is pro- probably one of the perfect castings of you know, to strike that balance of being a good person but kind of a goof and, mm. and yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Mitch is the role I would want to play. That me was too. when me I too. when I brought that up. Actually, it was the first play I read where I went, "Oh, I kind of like this character." Yeah. Um, based on the description, yeah. and, and Stella might be the Mitch. two like good good people in this script. Yeah, yeah, or close to yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah as, <laughs> as close as you can. No, get. I agree. Uh, I agree. But but so but so t- Jessica Tandy doesn't get cast in the movie. No, Vivian Lee, who originated Miss the London Scarlet. production. Yeah, she right. uh, she did the London production directed by Laurence Olivier, who wow. was her husband at the time. Mm. Correct. So I've always, somebody said one time, because there was, there was a lot of controversy. Like Brando almost was like, I'm not going to do this movie unless Jessica Tandy's doing the movie too. And right. Mm. He didn't have that kind of power at the time, really, to, to make that, that kind of, you know, Throw down that gauntlet. Pole, yeah. Um, but somebody said for the movie that there kind of wasn't a choice. The Vivian Lee was a better movie star than Jessica Tandy. Jessica Tandy was a better actress than Vivian Lee. And I'm like, I get it. But let's not take away from Vivian Lee either, because I think she's extraordinary in that film. And well, and they had actually also before they gave uh, offered it to Vivian Lee, they offered it to Olivia de Havilland. Yeah, is that her name? That's oh, right. and she was also in Gone. With yeah, the <laughs> which one is she? She's still alive. She's Ashley's wife. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's suing. She's suing Ryan Murphy for that. Uh, for the. Hell yeah! The Betty Davis, uh, Joan Joan Crawford Feud. movie, yeah, which I liked. I really liked their both yeah. those ladies and that. That's funny though. But uh, yeah, but she's 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 still holding on. Like, but so pretty... Vivian Lee gets it, and she's obviously Miss. She's Scarlet, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the interesting thing to me is Blanche Dubois is kind of Scarlet. 11 years later mm-hmm. <laughs> right <laughs> like it's like you know what i mean like it's sort of like almost like if you took the time between the two movies <laughs> this is the and did a sequel <laughs> it's weird it, it kind of works it kind of it does kind of work and it's almost like she's she's left that life and now she's gone and she's, she's gone somewhere else but she's kind of lost her mind <laughs> like, i mean i think bad. I, she's a rapist <laughs> i think she's she's up there with willie loman as one of the great tragic characters of hmm. american theater i mean who who wouldn't want to play that role i want to play blanche because it's let's so- do it <laughs> so loaded. Uh, i should say uh tennessee williams spent a lot of time in new orleans it was one of his favorite places to write he lived all over the place by the way like he was he scattered all over the place but i have been and i have seen the museum, and I have seen the streetcar named Desire mm. uh, in in person, and uh, he does do a great job of capturing. I love that he his description of colors. If you notice how much he uses blue, he mentions blue. 
throughout the entire play over and over and over again right. from close to the blue piano that's playing right. in the background his descriptions and his stage directions i was like oh could you do could you do a minimalized version i'm like of any of his plays and i'm like i don't know how minimal you could get with it because he's so specific and so you could tell he's a poet right so a lot gorgeous of his, in his description yeah everything yeah. i remember learning about him in school you know in high school was about the symbology right it's yeah. all about symbolism it's all about the the the, act, the glass pieces in the menagerie are laura like her bones <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and the the fire escape it symbolizes his need to escape this house and life. You know, and you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> Which now we roll our eyes at, but at the time was, you know, revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I think um, without those things, it, it loses the Williams of it all. Yeah, It's also his use of bit. music, like the way he uses blues in um, Streetcar, the way he uses the lamentation in Sweet Bird of yeah. Youth. Mm -hmm. Like he's really into music, like a, sp yeah. a theme. He likes having a theme, a, theme that repeats a musical it. theme. But there's just some of his descriptions, like uh, uh, in terms of the colors, uh, the lurid nocturnal brilliance. Like, uh, first of all, I love the word lurid. I think it's, it's a good. And let's just bring it back. Great southern, you know, kind of you know, fucking queeny kind of word to use. Lurid. Don't be so lurid. Uh, but it's. Uh, I just. It just knocked me out. The detail of and how I would go back and just reread those it was the same thing that we talked about with august wilson when i read that one section that yeah. opens up uh uh piano he's left. not he's not nearly as poetic as wilson but right. no no but his williams definitely his has some yeah it's the, it's the yeah. language and you can you you can hear him having listened he spent a lot of time just sort of observing just like yeah. august wilson did and the, the, those similarities are just are really really interesting to me. CJ, I want to hear your take on Blanche. Um, just like what you what your kind of thoughts are on her. But I just wanted to say my other take on my other small take on Blanche is um, that she maybe also just watched Gone with the Wind and decided to be that way. <laughs> oh, like, Bl like Blanche herself. Watched. Blanche herself, not Vivian Lee, but Blanche <laughs> Blanche herself the character while I'm reading this play, sometimes I go, is she just trying really hard to be a Southern <laughs> Belle? And she's not really, but she is like, you know, but anyway. I ahead. wondered, I the main thing I wondered about that character was if Tennessee Williams had actually had an experience in his life as a young man with a woman like that. Oh, mm -hmm. I think he was, he was surrounded by them. I think, I mean, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just I I it seemed like he was you know he was people loved him socially. He he was the fucking party, and I bet older women loved him. And I wondered if maybe this was kind of a little relate like something that had happened to him that he kind of tucked into this play. I think that he obviously a lot of his sisters in this. Obviously, the mental illness and the instability is in it, and his mother is in it. But I think that what he observed, and I think one of the other reasons that the play is so good is that it also is about change. There's also a social change. She is holding on to a world that is fading away quickly in terms For of sure. those manners, in terms of those expectations that were Same on with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Like, Absolutely. Same. Oh, yeah. He repeats it again and again. 
but the idea that she's trying to cling on to not only her youth, not only her desirability, but that she's trying to cling on to something that has now been dramatically altered by the war, the war, the World War Two, and the changing of the country and she, money and all that 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 factors in. She it. kind of reminded me a little bit of the mom from The Seagull, to be quite honest. Mm, like someone trying absolutely. to grasp onto her beauty and her youth because that is all she is valued for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also noticed. Um, and, and I wouldn't, I maybe would call him a proto-feminist because he was very, he obviously connected a lot with the women in his life. Mm -hmm. That we see, you know, the way that we talk about women, the way that in, in the play in Streetcar, the, the way that women are talked about, nuts, uh, loco, the, you know, that we talk about their sexuality, the, the talking about their figures and uh, you know, well, in Night of the Iguana, we'll get to that later. You know, where he he, the one character is just calling another character, woman character, fat. Get yeah. out of those pants! I don't know why you're wearing those pants. Mm -hmm. That kind of observation, like he, I think, because of his, uh, his sexuality and his identity and where he was at, he was able to tap into. Uh, feminine and masculine in a way that a lot of writers wouldn't necessarily be able to. And I think it's a nexus point again of, mm. of time, place, sexuality, person, the people around him. You know, he's obviously and alcohol and alcohol and pills. Pills. <laughs> um, but he, he, he clearly has great sympathy for uh, women, but he also holds a lot of anger because of his mother yes, and that sort of sure. thing. So there's a lot of like Freudian, you know, get yourself to analysis, honey. Well, uh, and the, the, that's in it. It's that flip side too about like you know pointing out how women are spoken to or treated, but in a time. I mean, it's it's the same thing as men coming back from the war and not dealing with the PTSD or mm. whatever a woman that is treated like that instead of instead of realizing like hey i have more worth than my youth and my beauty it just turns them into a cruel person too well there's that whole which makes them lash out at their children or you know what i mean everyone there's the whole thing at the end with stella going what will she do what yeah. will she do uh and being terrified for her i think it's one of the best moments for the Stella character for an actress to to play that is this you know she's been so clearly protective of her you didn't know her when she was a girl you didn't know her before these things happened you didn't know her before her husband before she caught her husband in a gay affair and then caused him to commit suicide it's it's horrifying there's also a weird side of this. There was a lot of rumors that Marlon Brando and Laurence Olivier were making love throughout the process of this film. Whoa. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Which Vivi Vivian Lee was married to Laurence Olivier. That's Whoa. all conjecture, but it's like. Yeah, there was many. That's juicy. Known. Well, yeah, yeah, and it was suggested, like there was suggestions that, uh, that, that Williams and Brando were also um, spending time together and. Apparently, Marlon was pretty free in terms of that kind of thing and pretty fluid. Uh, but there's a, a short film. Have you guys ever seen the I think it's called The Departure. 
and I've seen it, and it's Gillian Anderson or Gillian Anderson. I Jillian. think it's Gillian. Gillian, Gillian. Yeah. yeah. From uh, X Files. Yeah. And, and the Crown. Um, and she plays Blanche. Yes. She was doing it at the time somewhere. Uh, she was doing a revival of it, and then they made a short film that was a prequel about her relationship with the student. Oh. And it's pretty intense. Uh, and it's about her like actually getting fired for it and uh, kind of worth watching. I think people should check it out. It's weird. Uh, she's good. Um, but oh, no, it's weird that it to, Yeah, I'm writing it down. I'm writing it down. Um, what if I kept – you know how Blanche – she doesn't really ever lie necessarily. Well, she does, but she throughout she the whole fibs. thing. She fibs. Fibs. Right. <laughs> but I kept thinking of um, the Dark Knight, Heath Ledger's Joker. Yeah. Being like, you know how he every time he tells the story of how he got his scars, it's different. different. Yeah, I started thinking about that, and I was like, Blanche is Heath Ledger's choker, <laughs> <laughs> and I just ro- I totally. just rolled with it. Yeah, it works. <laughs> um, uh, th- here's a here's a quote by Blanche about Stanley. He's an animal, subhuman, bearing the raw meat home from the jungle. Yeah. Yeah. A caveman. Yeah. (laughs) Well. Yeah. I mean, there's there's also, you know, there's also a a sort of sub theme, a motif about class, you know, class conflict. But it's 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 part of the lie that she's telling herself that she is somehow better than this. But she hasn't and she hasn't been for a long time that she was she hasn't had that status for years and years and years. Right. So, you know. Uh, it's the only thing that fuels Stanley to to go and do digging to find out the truth about her. Right. Uh, is that is that sort of p- picking on the on the wound? And then the other thing that I I, I don't know if I would have noticed when I was in college is is her taking over the apartment and the slow additions of things and the you know the lantern over the light bulb oh i can't stand a bad light bulb right you know i mean she's Being got in the some bathroom insane forever. fucking insane yeah. fucking one liners that are just right well uh, and that's the the symbology of that i guess right is the is that she's um she doesn't want to be seen in the light now yeah. And the movie really pushes that narrative. It does, and yeah. To the do. point of showing her in a moment where they pull the 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 blind away and she's like, oh, yeah. now you've seen me. You know, <laughs> I mean, that happens, but it's like the movie is like really shoots its shot on that one. Um, can I read a Elia Kazan quote? Mm-hmm. Yeah. About the, uh, the rape scene. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because I want to hear discussion on that and then I have kind of an interesting thing about the difference between the play and the movie mm-hmm. uh, ending. But um, he said of the rape, the ravishment of the tender, the sensitive, the delicate by the brutal forces of modern society. It's a brutal plea for comprehension. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, obviously Tennessee Williams was around while they were producing, while he was directing this. Mm-hmm. So maybe they agree on this. And I think I sort of agree with him too, which is the idea of this, it, it being this, if it is Blanche's story, like you said, Scott, then it's about her sort of in a way having done to her what she did to somebody else. But it's also because 
oh, I'm I'm heading towards a dead end because I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, there's there's a duality, and there's there. I took it as, and especially in this most recent re- reading, that it was, um, it was society doing it to her, that it was it was kind of the reverse of what you just described. I think Kazan, it sounds to me, is trying to rationalize Stanley's act as opposed to describing metaphorically what happens to her literally, but what's been happening to her forever. There's, I have, you. I think you also have, a, you, despite her committing statutory rape right it, it you, doesn't you, justify anything it doesn't justify anything but there's a there's a modicum of sympathy and a modicum of understanding that the pressures of society that are being put on this woman an aging woman a spinstress for all intents and purposes a widow who is a school teacher and the her need her craving her desire to have some sort of association with youth and we see this in many of his other plays mm-hmm. uh that that it becomes almost a, a a rationalization not okay or not justified in in terms of what her what she the character does but in terms of she's almost forced into it that it, it's it's put on her and there's no sympathy for her mental illness there's no recognition of her mental she was sensitive Stella mm-hmm. says she was sensitive. She was a sensitive right. thing. I don't know. Am I answering that que- your, your question? No, you are. I just I wanted to create discussion around it because it is such a – I mean, you got people still defending them. You know, it's, it is – There's no defense of that rape. There's no defense of that rape. There isn't. He, right. it, is, it is about, it is about in, in terms of just ground-level human stuff, it is brutally about power. It is about a man gonna. This is my castle. I'm going to. It's it is toxic masculinity to the it's nth his, degree, and it's it's him losing control to a point where he feels like the only way to take back control of his house, his life, his right. pride is to physically take it and literally rape it. Right. So, and it's all that and, ends up being kind of the thesis of the play. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It's it's. It's the raping of a soul in in an it's the last beat down of a soul that's trying to find its it's she's a moth and it's yeah. like it's like it's it's him clasping his hands and killing a moth well right. and then the and tragedy a, of like no one believes her and she's fucking sent away right. well <laughs> yeah, right Stella and doesn't mean, believe her Stella yeah. can't I mean when I say the Stella whole... can't it, the whole ending of the play is gutting. Oof. Mm-hmm. Just pure gutting, especially because Stella has to stay. Like, in her eyes. She doesn't have to, but she she has to. She just had a child. She He he provides the money for her. In 1947, you stay. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You're and she does to. love him and assumes that he loves her. And whether or not she believes Blanche actually, I think, is still on the table. But she has to act like she doesn't no matter what. She has to play play that deck. So it, it's – but the movie – we got to talk about this. The movie sort of insinuates that she leaves with Blanche at the end and believes her. Oh. And in my opinion, I, maybe not. But that's how I watched it. And 
I was sort of reading about what any type of like what the reasoning for that was and there was some debate about it about how to end it because <laughs> Hollywood felt like Stanley can't not be punished mm. well, that was a double negative but he needs to be punished for right. what he did so she needs to leave him hmm. which is kind of weirdly woke of Hollywood. all right Hollywood mm. I'm or how not by woke that. they are <laughs> with other things in this movie and other and further movies that are made of Williams work and mm-hmm. I think um, they, they also but yeah downplay the rape a bit I mean they make they it do. it's 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 a lot more in you like I didn't realize it was a rape as a kid certainly and i probably didn't realize it was a rape sure in the film until you know my teens where i'm like oh like th- this isn't okay this yeah is, this right is yeah. not a yeah. consensual whatever yeah yeah uh but yeah yeah wow. it's it's it <clears throat> all that being said and i i found it palatable i found the brutality palatable in the sense that I felt like I, a light was being shown on something. Hmm. I think it was the combination of the mental illness. Like I said, this time I really, really felt like Stanley on the page felt very secondary. He felt far more symbolic and and metaphorical. He was society. He was sort of brutish, stupid, insensitive, society as a whole not just men but mm-hmm. uh, and that it, it was blanche's play and again going back to how tragic it was the 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 pressures on at that time put on women put on southern women mm. oh my god drove her to madness and i think that that's why to you... lose everything before the madness right like... yeah and then i th- which is why she's the antagonist i mean oh Nope. She's the <laughs> protagonist of this because it is it we're watching her fragility. We're watching it crumble. Mm-hmm. And actually an interesting thing, I got to listen to some of the Jessica Tandy uh radio. They did a radio, radio version of it. Oh, cool. And I listened to some of it. And she plays it at the beginning very bright. Everything's great. Everything's so good. I'm Blanche Dubois and everything's fine. Mm. And by the end, she's just destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Viv- Vivian Lee kind of brings in the gravitas right away, mm. which is, I think, maybe better for the movie. Sure. Uh, she's she's leaning into um, the crazy a little bit more. Well, and then right. she's also, I think, you know, Vivian Lee also famously had a nervous breakdown and famously suffered... Uh, a CJ's breakdown. A CJ's breakdown. <laughs> uh, but was you know was institutionalized and had you know had yeah. a lot of issues. So I think she probably identified in a way that um, other actresses didn't. But yeah. Well, w- w- is there anything else we want to say about? Because there's a there's a whole podcast to be done about streetcar. Sure. Oh my yes, god. Absolutely. I, I did want to leave with um, one of Arthur Miller's quotes from that. Uh, intro that he wrote uh, and I thought that this was great uh, and he wrote what Streetcar's first production did was to plant a flag of beauty on the shores of commercial theater in a way oh, wow. that just had not been done before Broadway just hmm. was a very commercial very if it wasn't a musical then it was slapstick farce comedy going on and then this drops and people wow. are like 
whoa. And, Mm -hmm. you know, America's already kind of trying to figure out what to do with its responsibility. You know, it's not only that the men came back and everything was an attempt to get back to normal, whereas America certainly had been a world power before that. It was now the world power. Right. It was the big guy on the block with all of that responsibility and all that weight put on it. Uh, And I think he just captures so much of that chaos that was going on. Here, here. Agreed. Anything else, Siege? No, I just, I love this play. It's a great one. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good movie, too. It's on the AFI Top 100 list every year. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know. It'll probably stay on there. I think it's in the 40s. And just a big shout out to Kim Hunter, who had an yeah. amazing career, including Planet of the Apes and all the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, But on, on, on screen and on stage, uh, and she's just fantastic as Stella. She's Stella. Uh, so let's not uh, forget her. And Carl Malden, who's great as Mitch. Right. Great in the movie as Mitch. And that character's fantastic as well. It's all phenomenal performances, uh, top to bottom. And, you know, Ilya Kazan directed, which, you know, always good. He also directed uh, our next one. He directed that's true. A, which, a huge chunk of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so why don't we move on to the next one before we close up this episode? Let's get into this one a little bit. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention earlier, um, Tennessee Williams spent some time at the Pasadena Playhouse <gasps> writing. Um, he did an apprentice sort of writing program there, and that's where he wrote Stairs to the Roof. Oh, and putting that up there yeah, for the first time. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Kind of fun. I forgot about that, but that's a exciting little Bailey tidbit. Uh, <laughs> there's, uh, so the next one we're doing is what again? Sweet Bird of Youth. <laughs> oh, right. It's the one I chose. Um, I couldn't remember what order it was in. Uh, this one is, these are all pretty close together. Or they're within a decade of each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. So this is Sweet Bird of Youth. <laughs> or Youth, if you pronounce it that way. Feet. Uh, yeah, this came out what year? I have 59. Yeah, 59. That's what I have too. Yeah. Okay, cool. Just double checking. I feel like my notes on this are wrong. I had never even heard of this play. Mm-hmm. I was so upset that I hadn't. Uh, I couldn't find any of his later works. I wanted to read. He had he has one about uh some weird. I don't remember what was it about in the masks. In masks or or Outrageous. the Fitzgerald one. Oh yeah, there's one about summer clothes or F. Scott Fitzgerald and and Zelda and her like time in the in the institution. Like there's weird ones, weird absurd ones that he did later that I tried to find and I couldn't. So we ended up being like, all right, we'll cover his early stuff. We'll try to find other stuff for later. Like we said at the beginning of the episode, I don't know why I'm reliving all of this, but I chose Sweet Bird of Youth because I said that sounds fine. Sure, I found a copy of it. I read it. I'm so excited to talk about Me this. Me too. CJ, yeah. Break this shit down. CJ's breakdown. Used to be townie turned drifter and fuckboy, Chance Wayne returns to his hometown as the companion of fading star and hot mess Alexandra DeLago, a.k.a. Princess, hoping to use her stardom to impress St. Cloud and his past girl, Heavenly. Her bolo tie-wearing segregationist politician father has other ideas. Uh, fuckboy. Fuck nice. Boy. <laughs> nice good <laughs> fuckboy <laughs> reference. But that's what he is. Exactly He's a right. gigolo. Yeah. And, uh... 
truly a literal fuckboy and just a fuckboy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really loved this play. I, did I too. also, uh, it is almost exactly the same plot as the movie Just Friends, starring Ryan Reynolds. How dare you? But it's it's about. <laughs> but check this out. This is amazing. It's about Ryan Reynolds, who was super fat. Yes. And it's kind of a. It's kind of terrible the way that they handle it. But it's. But as a as a fat person, I can say it's great. And he is super large. And he and Amy Smart are best friends, but she doesn't want to be with him because they're best friends. He's been friend zoned. They're just friends, which is the name of the movie. And then he moves to California and he becomes super rich and famous, which Chance does not. But this guy did. And he and he comes back and he's skinny and he's like trying to win over Amy Smart again. Okay. And but he brings back with him Anna Ferris, who's like the crazy washed up um, actress. Okay, so actually I don't remember what she is, but she's hilarious in it. Um, everyone should go watch Just Friends. Let's talk about Tennessee Williams. I kind of love and hate <laughs> you right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just but kept thinking about it. You're not wrong. That movie has its has its an unexpected. It has its charm moments. That you're just like, yeah, eh, fuck you. I and thematically similar in terms of this idea of like, you know, I'm from Wichita, Kansas. I haven't been back but one time since I moved to LA and the one time I came back I did feel like look I'm gonna prove look I can go back and show everybody yeah I've been in LA for six years and I've been fucking killing it you know so it's it it I was with him but I also he's a douchebag a womanizing luciferian douchebag yeah and I love this play. This was the one that I thought was some serious early Tracy Letts shit. Like yes. being yeah. in a room and fucked up and not knowing what's going. Like it reminded me of um, Bug. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, I, I know they're not the yeah. same. No, but no, no. But the, the that. influence, you know, it's. The feel. Yeah. It's like, you, well, it's. Like I it's felt like those... I was fucked up with them while I was reading it. Oh, yes. yeah. And it's one of those easy convention, not easy conventions, but one of those conventions that, uh, you know, any young writer can do. Okay. I've got two people in a room. They can't leave the room. What's, you know, l load them each up with all of their shit and then set it a go, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. It's, it's, it's hot. And, and loaded. I love his names. Some of it, heavenly. The fact oh my that he's God. naming a character heavenly. Heavenly. And and what chance he that his chance. name is Chance. Yeah. Uh, is is just fantastic. It's just these great little literary motifs. These little tweaks. These little dots that he puts in that are just. This mwah, play like, also made me want to go on vacation to Florida so badly. Well, it takes what? place on the Gulf Coast. It takes place. Well, it just on the sounds Gulf. beautiful there. The description sure, sounds sure. so like lovely, and the sandbar. That I want to, but I want like a time machine. Yes, I want a time machine to go do it then. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. I actually was really curious about the setup of this town, and Saint Cloud now has like it's like they've got thirty or fifty thousand people, but in the nineteen fifties there were only three thousand people in this town. Mm -hmm. I oh, so wow. like it's got that whole small town thing where it's like of course everyone knew what was going on there was nobody there yeah. and uh and I lived in the, on the Gulf Coast for a number of years so I I I can smell it like that's the cool <laughs> thing about like reading this I'm like I can smell it I can see you know it's called it's also called the Emerald Coast because the waters mm. are like green right. but 
but also pristine mm. there are it's sugar white sands mm. it's not you know it's it's it is beautiful it's just got this southern conservative vibe to it you know yeah she's like oh buddy why are you going back there you could go to so many other places you don't need to go back to yeah i just want to go with a couple friends get an airbnb <laughs> have a ton of booze and just get DoorDash the whole time that sounds great but yeah we could also spend the money go there um i um i feel like uh this is took me by surprise in a lot of ways i will say actually i did know about this play for one reason because the movie death becomes her mm. meryl streep is starring in a musical production called songbird based on Sweet yes, yes. oh no <laughs> yes which is really funny um but that was the only like context i had for it so i was expecting sort of like a mediocre like glass menagerie s not ever... that glass menagerie is mediocre but i was expecting mediocre uh-huh, uh-huh. did you ever see the film I've never seen the movie. I want to watch the movie. I I watched Night of the Night of the Iguana, uh, which I have thoughts on, but I I I didn't get to watch this movie. Um, I'm gonna watch it. I'm excited to watch it. Paul Newman. Paul Newman. He has Paul, yeah. and Paul Newman's also the lead in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, which uh, CJ forced me to watch, and I loved. <laughs> it was. I actually fun. loved that movie. I just um uh I like the play better. Yeah. Uh, I read the play just for fun after watching it and i was just like well i should read the play and see what they all cut out i hate how neutered it is as a film but the film is great mm-hmm. for lives all day every day yeah. for lives. um but i didn't watch this film um and i want to geraldine page geraldine i mean come page. on she might be i read the cast list might be one of the most underrated we just don't talk about i i find that we just don't talk about geraldine yeah. page and as much as we should because uh, she wasn't a hot toy. movie star she wasn't right, a true. movie star. She was just known as like model more than anything, but um, or the face, right? But uh, Rip Torn, mm-hmm. who is a Voice modern American, Mar- modern American actor. Uh, I love that guy. Voice of Zeus in Hercules. <laughs> also uh, in um, I forget his name, but he's in Men in Black. He's no, in yeah. Dodgeball. He's in all those things. He's later in Defending in Your Life. Have you ever watched Defending Your Life? No. It's Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks. It's an Albert Brooks oh, movie. Oh, shit. I like you Albert Brooks. You have got to see this flick. It is okay. basically the story of this guy who's kind of a Hollywood like agent guy, and he dies. He dies in the first two minutes of the movie. Oh, shit. And the rest of the movie is him in the afterlife in purgatory, and he has to def- everybody. everybody in purgatory has to defend their life and whether or not that sounds great why don't i know about this movie it it, it came out but rip torn plays his attorney (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome and torn has the most of he he and leonard nimoy are the two most interesting faces ever yeah no one has ever looked like rip torn or leonard nimoy and rip torn was married to geraldine page they were husband and wife right and another bit of interesting uh uh fun facts tidbits by bailey um, the Rip Torn was in the original Broadway production mm-hmm. as Tom mm-hmm. Finley, mm-hmm. and then he is it in the movie. And then after the movie came out, he went back to Broadway and took over as Chance, huh? Oh, right, and played wow. Chance for a little while. And then they did, um, 
a made-for-TV movie years like in the eighties, eighty-nine. I want to say, oh, and it's yeah. uh, Elizabeth Taylor's princess. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, like eighty-eight. I think it was eighty-eight. It is eighty-eight. Oh, wow. And Rip Torn plays Boss Finley. Ooh! So he's like deeply attached to this play. Wow! <laughs> yeah, right. But that's such a cool, such a cool um, uh, setup for a movie. Uh, both the defending what? What is it? Defending your life. I, it, right, and it just and popped up the other day, and I'm like, oh, that Rip Torn's in that, and it's it is it is I'm a great to watch feel. That now. You will. It is so feel good and awesome and life affirming. I can't wait. Yeah, because I want to watch Sweet Bird of Youth as well. I'm a big Paul Newman fan. Uh, cool Hand Luke is like one of my favorite movies. Of all time. Yeah. So, he's just yeah. so handsome. He's so he's sexy. so handsome, and, he, and he's just—he's he's, not even my type, but he's so handsome. He's, he's so my type. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Did anybody notice that Boss Finley calls Heavenly Heavenly little bit? <gasps> and I so my oh, question shit. was is that kind of like a common affectionate nickname for your daughter in the south or was vocal picking from this play I it don't... is it is a common thing in the south okay. I've heard it uh, enough but it but when you said it I, the first thing I thought of was the Vogel play so I wonder if she did pick up on that I don't know Vogel mm. write us let us know yeah. Vogel, let us know. Well, <laughs> just ask Natalie. She's, she's already like she likes some of my tweets. So. <gasps> oh my God, we're we've made it. Paula Vogel likes some of Scott's tweets. Uh, it, it was so we it, are to be fair, it podcast. was me pandering to her horribly when she posted uh, that she may be doing uh, writing an immersive. Uh, they shoot horses, don't they? Uh, which is an awesome. Oh right, book. oh right. And if you ever get to see the movie. Uh, I want to see people trying to dance for 24 straight hours to make 50 bucks in the Great Depression. It is an unfilled right. fucking movie. Anyway, digression, digression, digression. But um, yeah, Sweet Bird of the... Can I tell you what the first thing I noticed was? And, hmm. and I, I noted the date and the difference of the time was that the quote-unquote, forgive my language, the Negro uh, serviceman uh, uh, in the hotel has a name. And a decade earlier in Streetcar, he he's not giving people names, and I just uh, I just thought that, that was interesting, and I wonder how keenly he aware aware of it he was. He doesn't have many, at least in the stuff that I'm aware of, that he writes many African American characters at all, and I would imagine that that sort of systemic institutional racism and growing up in Mississippi was embedded in him in a way that. He never talks. He, he he doesn't address race openly at all. No. Uh, well, and they've done a career. few productions in different places. James Earl Jones was in a production as was it Big Daddy or Boss Finley? He's played one of them. I think Big Daddy. There was an all yeah. black version of Streetcar. I know that was done. Yeah. At cool. University. And I think I think that's it. It is. Whereas, like with Wilson, it's not. It's not about you could never obviously cast somebody who isn't a black American person, you know, like uh, to play it. But but w- I feel like w- Williams can easily be colorblind. Well, cast. yeah, especially some it's of the universal like, like shit. streetcar. Definitely. You know, and he mentions it in there. And it was an observation that he made in some of his short stories, too. I think one of the reasons that he liked New Orleans so much was that 
it was a bubble in which the races interacted in ways that he hadn't seen literally just a hundred miles down the road, like a hundred miles right. down I-10 black and white did not mix the way that they do did in New Orleans at the time and still do. Um, but at that particular time, especially it just wasn't, obviously it was a factor. I don't want to diminish anything, but it was, it was a different sort of relationship and, um, and a little bit more open and, I actually, this was the play that this was the one that I read that I was like, I was very interested to know what his stance was on racism and equality because I thought there was almost a weird antagonistic thing that he did because all of these characters coming in, they're getting information and they're giving it to the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it just was an interesting underlying story for me where I was like, what are you trying to do with that? Mm. That I was curious about. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, and then you have boss Finley who is, is pro segregation. Yeah. Yeah. Like straight up. Yeah. Even though he tries to prove that he's, he wasn't doing things based on race. He had nothing to do with that young man who was murdered but castrated segregation right castrated and murdered right Mm -hmm. and it's and it's um but then of course it's obvious that that is that he did he absolutely is the one who had that happen because that's what his thugs do Mm -hmm. to chance at the end Mm -hmm. and um i have read that the hollywood censors didn't allow that to be alluded to in the movie oh uh, so I don't I don't know about that I haven't seen it yet but I read that I want to watch that uh, but that he just gets beaten up sort we'll, of um, we'll have to do a group movie night and we'll all watch it I'd too. love that absolutely yeah so historical question okay. they keep talking about Heavenly's operation and mm-hmm. when I was reading it I just assumed it was an abortion but then they say later that it was a disease so right. he gave her VD. He gave her a venereal disease, and she had to have a hysterectomy to oh, fix it. Well, and at it's the time, botched, isn't it? it, it it's, it's botched. It's, it, okay. Attempt, it, yeah, yeah. It's an attempt to clean her up. Right. And, and, and it goes it, awry, it, and that's when she basically. basically. And so the movie. I also read this. The movie changes it to an abortion, which I think is besides that. Splendor in the Grass is probably around this same time. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know that. It's and that's less like hard to talk about, right? I think it was just. It was you were. It was. It's very subdued. It's kind of like the rape in Streetcar in the film. It's become. It becomes this thing that happens behind the curtain. And, right. And I it's, see. It's okay. definitely underplayed, as I recall. It's been a long time yeah. since I've seen the hmm. movie. Um. But I. I think that it's a fascinating theme, that, we, we talk about uh, neutering, uh, and and sterilizing. That that's the threat. That that's the thing that hangs over both men and the women in this. There's this haunt. The the castration of chance, uh, or the threat of castration is this. You know that that's his thing. That's all he yeah. has. Is all he has is his dick. You know, and and, and his sperm. And his sperm and his sexuality, and that she's Agreed. in that that place because of 
That's also all I have. <laughs> I think on that note, we should close out the episode so that we can finish. Really get into it. Yeah, I want to talk. I want to hear you guys about the end. I want to talk about the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. I really liked this play. I'm excited to get into it. And then next week, we're talking Scott's pick, which what was that, Scott? The Night of the Iguana. That's right, and uh, I did get to watch that film, so I like to compare film to to play, and that'll be fun to do. Uh, But thank you for joining us for part one of Cast on a Pod 10 Roof, the works of Tennessee Williams. We'll be back next week to finish up and discuss Night of the Iguana, uh, which is considered by many to be his last great play. Mm Mm-hmm. Question mark? Um, Is it great? We don't know. Um, (laughs) You'll find out. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, And then I'll announce what we're doing after that next week. So you'll have to wait. But it is a theater, theater and stuff after (gasps) we finish this miniseries. And it's a CJ pick. And we'll tell you what that is next week. So can't wait. CJ, we go ahead. know all of you have questions, you have comments, maybe you have suggestions about what we should be covering in the future. Um, we would love to hear from you regardless. Please, irregardlessly, contact us. Thank you. Via <laughs> email, Instagram, Facebook, the Twits. We'd love to hear from you. Scott. Uh, yeah, I did want to do a very quick... LA Spotlight. Quick LA Spotlight. Um, if you have a chance, please on Instagram, um, check out Sharing the Spotlight. Uh, uh, you can follow that account, uh, but it's a collection of LA theater companies uh, focusing uh, on diverse voices and supporting diverse voices and promoting individual artists. So give that a shout out. Also, on April 1st uh, will be the birthday. Uh, celebration of Sacred Fools Theater, which um, all three of us have been a part of and many of our guests and supporters have been a part of. Um, and there will be a promotional thing. So check, check out sacredfools.org. Uh, you can also check out Sacred Fools LA on Twitter and Instagram. There will be many things. And if you've got a few bucks to spare, um, I know donations are being accepted. Uh, it is a nonprofit uh, theater company and could use all the support it could get. Uh, all that being said, I uh, we should give a huge shout out to the great Ryan Thomas Johnson for writing Woo-hoo! our theme song. Our theme song is better than your theme song. To the great Pam Quinn for writing our uh, special episode-centric theme song. Yes. Uh, which you will hear momentarily. Uh, and finally, to the great Annie Baker, Pulitzer Prize winner <laughs> and author of this podcast. She doesn't know that, uh, but she will. And one day, Annie Baker, you're going to be in L.A., and one day we're going to buy you a beer. Yes. That's right. Please go rate, subscribe, review. Actually, review. It really does help us. And that's all we got. We'll see you next week, nerds. Happy Mm -hmm. Passover. There are giants in the woods. There are big, tall, terrible giants (laughs) in the woods. I think they're in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) He's pooping in the woods. Oh, Jesus. Turd burglar out. Later. (laughs) Turd burglar out. Jesus Christ. Mm.